0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Oshunde Oshaba. Oshunde is an engineer at the RAND Corporation and a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. Oshunde, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Uh, awesome. So, you did your PhD in machine learning, and now you spend quite a bit of your time working on the policy implications of machine learning and AI, in particular with regard to ethics, among actually rolling up your sleeves and doing some model development. Tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. So, I'm, I did my engineering degree at uh, at USC, University of Southern California, across town from where I am. I mean, Sunny Southern California, uh, in Santa Monica by the beach. But uh, yeah, so at, at USC, I was I was focused on more theoretical aspects of learning algorithms. Uh, so I was trying to figure out how to improve machine learning algorithms, statistical learning algorithms using using the careful injection of noise. And it was a very theoretical type of thing. And when I was finished, I wasn't quite sure what to do with myself. Uh, so. Yeah, it's one of those things where you could either go up up to Silicon Valley and do some work for for a commercial entity or figure out something to do in academia. I sort of found a halfway point at RAND. RAND is a public policy think tank. They don't don't like the word think tank. We do a lot of um, thinking about policy problems. Our, Our mandate at RAND is to improve decision making through objective analysis. And so I had worked there over a summer while I was in graduate school looking while I needed money. So I worked there for the summer and I figured uh, it was a pretty good fit. So I went back there and it was just around the time when um, lots of government agencies, lots of um, um, people across the country were starting to think about machine learning and the implications. And so uh, I I hit the ground running at ran just deploying models, deploying machine learning models to answer diverse policy questions. And um, my growth at RAND has basically been me recognizing using my technical skills, but recognizing some of the normative implications and trying to address them, the normative implications of using AI and machine learning in public policy spaces. So I try to balance both now. Uh, it's been an interesting ride, I guess.
0: And you recently returned from the deep learning in Daba. Tell us, what did you present on?
1: Yes, uh, so so um, I... They they asked me because I had written some stuff on the issue of bias in, in algorithmic systems. Uh, I, I was asked to talk about more broadly. Well, if you think about it, uh, the question of of bias, or what we call bias or equity in the use of algorithms, it's a it's a it's an ethical question because there are ethical norms that we're trying to say, okay, do our systems uh, adhere or do they violate those ethical norms and so in the past year I've been trying to broaden that that discussion quite a bit not just from not just on questions of ethic of bias but also questions of ethics more broadly and so the question becomes when a commercial entity when a public entity decides to use machine learning for a particular decision problem what are the ethical what are the ethical constraints they should be be looking into what are the frameworks for by which they can judge themselves to make sure that they're not violating X, Y, Z ethical constraints. So my, my talk at Indaba was trying to make that more formal, as opposed to just uh, just this um, touchy-feely discussion of ethics that often goes on trying to keep, give formal, at least concrete frameworks by which people can think about these things.
0: Uh, I, I like the sound of that. Were there, it sounds like there were a number of frameworks that you presented. Uh, as, was there a specific number of them? Uh, have you kind of categorized the the framework space, if you will?
1: Uh, I have not. If I had done that, I, I think I would be very happy. But uh, <laughs> I, I mean, that's like no, that's a huge, a huge task. But one of the things I, I relied on in discussing this was um, some of the work by Shannon Balo out of um, Santa Clara University, and the the idea here is that um, if you if you if you try to imp- impose normative prescriptive ethics on the system that's it's not always it doesn't always work like coming up with the, the universal ethical law for guiding tech practice tech development is not it's not usually an easy or a feasible task so we went through this process where we went okay instead of trying to say this is how this should be instead of imposing um norms on, on just um unilaterally we tried to elicit the norms from case studies. So the first part of the conversation at the at the Indaba was okay. Here are <clears throat> here are a couple of case studies where people were thinking about using using algorithms in in a particular decision process. Help people build their intuition on where the ethical ethical um, flashpoints might be. And then towards the end, we started coming up with frameworks. the, the, the one framework I liked that I sort of um, I sort of pushed a little bit was the, the the Belmont principle idea. So if you think about it the Belmont when you think about the Belmont principles, it's really uh, the set of principles that came out of um uh, a Belmont report back I think in the seventies, trying to think through what are how do you think through the implications of human experiment of experiments that affect humans. So human subjects protection and um, stuff. And, and so Belmont no, not, yes, B E L M O N T. Okay. So, so part of the on the understanding I was trying to pull into this space is every time you develop an algorithm to answer a problem that affects lots of people, that's in a sense a social experiment. It's a it's a social experiment that affects lots of human subjects. So it's not it's not doesn't seem too too far of a of a step to say that you should at least Try to judge those new applications according to the development principles. And so we have things like uh, the Belmont principles are, uh, it's basically your uh, Hippocratic oath in taking it a little bit further. So the basic one is do no harm. Uh, and there's the, then the other one is um, make sure your application is just. And then uh, the third one is respect autonomy. Now, those sound very abstract and high And so one of the things, one of the tasks I, I gave myself was to try to. Um, Rid those, make those more concrete in the case that is what we're talking through at, at the deep learning in Hidaba. And so the first one, you know how, was like actually interesting because for the most part, we all think we are doing the best we can. So the, I, I think we, we decided that we, would limit it not just to doing no harm, but do no foreseeable harm. Understand that we don't always, be are always able to, to understand the impact a new piece of technology, a new piece of model, a new model has. On a particular space, so those are the types of conversations. So case studies to to, to prime intuitions, um, building building up, um, suggesting frameworks like the Bellman principle, the Belmont principle frame to help us um, frame new new ap- thinking on new applications, and just trying to get general takeaways, general understandings or flashpoints, and thinking about ethics and technology practice.
0: What what were the case studies that you went into?
1: Ah, so, yeah, let's see. This was like two, two three weeks ago. Uh, the first one was, I guess, uh, we're trying to... to so, this, this is a, a, uh, currently famous, currently popular, or infamous is the right word. Should people use facial recognition technologies for filing at borders? That was the, the first one. And one of the things I was trying to do there, because it's an, I, I work mostly in the United States, the deep learning in Daba is is a more um, international community. I, I sent out a, a survey to try to get to try to get people's people's perspectives on these types of questions earlier on. Okay. And I I made it I made it such that the survey was was tagged based on where what part of the world these people and um, the survey respondents identify with.
0: Oh, so we had people
1: like and yeah, the idea is that we increasingly we are having this issue of, uh, of value pluralism so let's let's walk through the, the chain there the first part of the chain is well questions of equity questions of bias those are normative ethical questions the second part of the chain is that well different parts of the world have different ethical norms that by which they live. Right? it's a very cultural thing and so part of the, the point of the survey was trying to elicit this any Disconnect any discontinuities in how, say, somebody in Europe thinks about um, privacy versus, say, somebody in Africa thinks about privacy. So, I, I, there was in in the survey was didn't really elicit those sharp disconnects, but in the conversation at the Indaba, there was this sense that some people thought it was. Perfectly fine, and some people, other people, thought it wasn't. It was there were such privacy constraints on the use of facial recognition profiling that the security benefits or any potential security security benefits of facial recognition technologies were over were overwhelmingly positive compared to the potential downfalls. And so there is not the conversation on that case study illustrated that there was no there was no unified. Perspective on, on
0: the use of facial recognition technology, uh, and so when you you have a situation where there's no unified perspective, that seems like a perfect opportunity to try to apply some framework. How did you apply the the framework, uh, the Belmont frame, to the to this particular case study?
1: So the I, I think it's hard to to take an issue on which there is polarization or. Uh, significant diversity of opinion, and try to marshal it into some preferred, whatever that preferred position is. Uh, so the uh, the the procedure, the the way forward was to highlight that. Uh, okay, you want. So one person brought up the idea that well, uh, governments are technically more trustworthy than say commercial companies in the use of uh, facial recognition technologies, and that is that is a a question that's heavily dependent on what your experience has been with government and what part of the world you're from. And so it's not like you can apply the framework and come up with a single answer that should, that should control. Mm -hmm. So my, my job was to essentially point out that, well, okay, if that's your perspective, recognize that the respect for personal autonomy, that, that factor, that, that's the third principle in the Belmont principle. That is not, you know, that's not, Uniformly guaranteed across the world from, with different governments, and so every time you're making decisions, it's not a it's not a question that oh you should always use facial recognition technology. It's more a question of when you're thinking about it, ask these questions, these types of questions, and that might help you make more contextual, context sensitive um, um, answers to those to to whether you should use the technology or not.
0: Hmm. Is that the same kind of process that you would Walk one of your uh, Iran client through. See, do you find that they that they want more concrete answers, or do they want uh, kind of these experiences that help them understand the the scope of the issues?
1: I think in general, when you're when when you're answering questions on uh, on behalf of somebody else, there is a balance that needs to be struck. You want to Relay strong, useful insights, strong, useful frameworks for proceeding when you leave the room. But at the same time, there is a, there is an expectation that you give them concrete answers, or at least somewhat concrete answers to the issues that they're facing. So I try to strike a balance between the two. So, um, when somebody asks me, usually when I'm working on, on, F, so the, the presentation was a little bit, um, the deep learning and that reputation was, was at a higher level of abstraction than I would normally work at because I'm at, at that point I'm trying to present as much insight, as much um, abstract insight as possible. In um, actually talking to clients and actually talking with, dealing with governmental clients, I would, prep, I would usually start with a concrete demonstration of, um, okay, this is, this is a facial recognition technology you're trying to, use, you're, you're suggesting that you might want to use. Well, um, these technologies have X, Y, and Z, X, Y, and Z, um, characteristics. The most important uh, in the recent days, in the recent months, being that there is a differential error rate that has implications for, for justice. You can't treat everybody the same. You can't treat everybody equitably, whatever equitably means in that context. And how does that affect your procedures your operations and what do you intend to do to deal to address those those um, equity constraints those equity concerns so usually i'm working or at least i'm talking to clients at that level at a more concrete level of um, of detail but the goal is not just to give them give people one-off answers the goal is to have useful abstractions that help make sense of the world so that when somebody else comes with a similar type of problem. You can give them interesting answers, informed answers.
0: What types of clients are these generally, and what types of questions are these generally? And who's who's generally the the actual client? Uh, you know, what is their role?
1: People's experience at at Rand differ. Um, it's one of those places where you make you make your own way. Um, my my projects, most of my projects, tend to be, tend to be. Um, focused on questions I think are important as opposed to client-driven. But in general, RAND as a whole has clients, um, our biggest clients are in the half, about just under half our work um, comes from what we call the federally funded research and development centers. Um, We have three of them, or I think we have four now. We have one for the U.S. Army, one for the U.S. Air Force, one for the office of the Secretary of Defense, and one for for DHS, and so we would generally take on a, a series of a portfolio of strategic and tactical research problems for those four those four clients or subsections, subdivisions of those four clients. On the other hand, we have um, we have a health division, we have a justice infrastructure and energy division, we have a, we used to have a labor and population division. But in general, those will those will house our non-defense question, non-defense research questions, and there you'd have people um, getting grant money from NIH, NSF, or f- from foundations like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation or the Gates Foundation to answer some policy-relevant um, questions. There, there isn't as much detail. As I- I'm hesitant to go into a lot more detail about the nature and of the clients and the types of questions I go into because uh that might become a bit testive.
0: Sure, sure. No, that that helps me understand the the broad process by which folks are coming to you and the the types of questions that they might be looking for. At the Indaba, you presented this one Uh, framework. Are there other frameworks that you've relied on to address similar types of uh, ethical issues?
1: Uh, so there, there is one that I tend to. Uh, it's not so much a framework. Uh, well, I guess it's a framework in a sense. Uh, so oftentimes, uh, when people in the in the fairness, accountable, transparent machine learning, or uh, generally the AI policy space think about um, machine learning models, they generally think about it as single monolithic algorithms, single monolithic models that are solving decision, single decision questions. Um, increasingly, there there is this issue of uh, systems level thinking. Like even if every algorithm in a particular system is is bi- is unbiased, is is transparent, and all that stuff, it doesn't mean that the outcomes on from the entire system are necessarily going to are um, going to be uh, fair, unbiased. And so, are there, there
0: specific is- examples of that phenomenon that come to mind?
1: I, it's easier to to pay attention to, say, the criminal justice system, where you're always trying to tune algorithms. Uh, and but then the, we're always trying to tune algorithms at different parts of the of the system. So, for example, there's the risk uh, risk criminal risk recidivism um, estimation, criminal risk of recidivism risk estimation algorithms that has been popular, that's been part of the conversation for the past two years or so, based on public as work. Um, And the, the idea there has always been, oh, well, we just, we need to fix that. But then there is this, there was an interesting conversation that has been happening over the past year where even if you take this issue, essentially it falls under the umbrella of runaway feedback, runaway feedback loops in, in in systems where because even if you have an algorithm that's performing, say, in an optimal way, historic inequities can, can cause the, the algorithm as on, can cause a system to diverge in outcomes for different groups. And so this is sort of like perturbations of the initial conditions for a system, for, for the criminal justice system, is causing this vast outsized differences in, in outcomes. And this happens even if the algorithms themselves, without paying attention to the historical data, the algorithms themselves are trying to behave optimally. So that that's the the one the closest example I've seen. But this behavior seems one of the things I've been I've been trying to do is pay attention to essentially the, the systems level feedback effect as opposed to just focusing on individual algorithms and, and systems. So we've been doing this for one of my projects works on on this equity concern for the criminal justice system, for insurance systems, auto insurance systems, and for for employment systems. And we we emphasize the systemic aspect as opposed to this individual decision point aspect. And it's usually a lot more, I don't know, I I find it a lot more enlightening than, than focusing on a single algorithm.
0: Does looking at it from a systems perspective make these problems more or less actionable for the clients that are struggling to deal with them? I think it gives you,
1: it, it makes the analysis and the discussion a, a little bit more complex. But the world we live in is complex. The social <laughs> systems in which these algorithms that are operating are, are complex. Uh, but the, one of the things that that one of the extra levels, extra dimensions, f- degrees of freedom that this types of this type of perspective gives you is, well, okay, an algorithm isn't working out so well. You could do a, you could do one of two things. You could Modify the the model directly, or you could pay attention to the outcomes and do post hoc modifications, post hoc corrections to the outcomes to try to correct the the any any inequities in the, in the in the model. And one of so an example of where this has gone wrong is so in child welfare systems. I think there was a paper last year or the year before looking into the child welfare data system, and they tried to use an algorithm to better estimate the risk of, of adverse outcomes for, for children going through that system. They had a situation where the algorithm was, was was doing, in terms of predictive power, was doing pretty well, but in terms of implementation. So you had these social workers taking a look at the algorithm, but because either because of they don't understand what the algorithm is doing, or they don't trust that the algorithm is taking everything into account. They they decide to circumvent whatever recommendations the algorithm gives them. So that's like a post hoc modification to the, to the behavior of an algorithm. If you're focused on the algorithm alone, then you're not going to you're not going to pay attention to those types of those types of secondary effects that are actually quite important in the real world. And some of the work we're seeing in the criminal justice system is exactly this: the algorithm. We're doing an analysis for for doesn't matter word. So the algorithm was fine, but the post-hoc implementation was causing, was amplifying very, very tiny difference in ways that were were unsustainable. That is important going forward as we start thinking about where algorithms fit in in systems. I guess it's a long long way of saying, yes, it's more complex, but it gives you more degrees of freedom to play, to try to intervene, to correct mistakes.
0: Right, right, right. So... Yeah, taking a step back in dealing with these kinds of problems, you've mentioned two tools that you use. One is applying frameworks like Belmont. Another is taking a systems thinking approach to looking at the problem. Are there other uh, tools that you use in this way?
1: I mean, I'm still I'm still developing my thinking. Could I say that there are the tools? Not so much. One of so, there, there is another space in which. Um, uh, And which I've, I've, I think people have been trying to think of frameworks. And this is the part question of how do you regulate the free use of, of algorithms? Should you regulate the use of algorithms? And even if you wanted to, how would that work? And so the, the standard, the standard approach to regulation has always been impose laws, um, give, give, impose laws saying either you can do this or you can't do that. Um, increasingly, for for spaces where compliance is hard to to assure, there is the idea where compliance is hard to assure, where norms are actually more important than than hard regulations, the idea of soft governance approaches becomes more, is beginning to get more attention. Um, I think the the, the regulatory scheme, the frameworks for regulating the proper or the beneficial use of algorithms, that's still, there's a lot there. There's a lot of thinking going on there, but not much. There isn't as much hard and I guess there, there aren't as much proven frameworks that I can point to.
0: If you kind of take that thought exercise around soft regulation and establishing norms and try to take on a broad issue like algorithmic transparency, you end up in... Likely a very different place than something like a a GDPR. How how would you like compare and contrast the solution that you might end up with a, a soft regulatory approach and and something like GDPR?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I imagine that um, this this is me um um giving uh, my my best educated guess, and this is really the correct answer to this. Um, I imagine, so the thing about soft regulations is that you're trying to build norms and you're trying to build consensus that, that a broad coalition of people can agree to, a broad coalition of players can agree to. Um, the general thing about um, broad coalition is decision-making that, that, that require, based on broad coalition building is it's going to be a weaker, weaker regulatory framework. But if you're working in a highly polarized, highly fractionated space, Maybe that's the best you can do. GDPR is interesting because they come at it from a, from a strong normative frame. The idea that uh, the consumer is key, that privacy is, is 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 not an absolute right, but it's it's a it's a highly prioritized right, and uh, that uh, the people are central as opposed to the companies that controls. And it's an interesting and, and important perspective. It's one. It's a perspective that's been missing from the history of American American technology innovation, specifically when it comes to uh, data driven data driven innovation. Uh, but I don't. I don't think a sub governance framework would have come up with that. <laughs> 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 but we have yet worry that sometimes. Uh, okay, here here's the the, the driving follow up question. Uh, are there spaces where trying to assert a primary normative frame is the best solution to getting compliance Uh, so one of the things about gdpr is there is a question of whether it's going to drive fragmentation in in regulation so you have United States, is, so California is following GDPR's footsteps, um, but the United States, as a, a federal system, doesn't seem to be able to or want to or have the want to is a strong term to apply to a system. It doesn't seem to to be moving in that general direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, China is certainly not moving in the in the same in the same direction as as GDPR. If you if you if you try to impose global laws uh, concerning data privacy. And you come at it with a strong normative foundation, like uh, like what the GDPR does. It's it's an interesting exercise to see if that was going to be a viable global global approach to regulation.
0: Right, right. Yeah, particularly in light of the the global nature of the technologies that they're aiming to govern. Interesting. And so you spend roughly half your time on kind of these broad ethical and, and policy issues and another half of your time at Rand on you know model development and kind of rolling up your sleeves and, and building systems or proofs of concepts for clients. Uh, is that work also in this domain? Are you exploring explainability models and transparency, that kind of thing?
1: I, I'm a bit more exploratory in in my technical work largely because um for me the technical development keeps me honest and when when I when I, when I try to talk about uh, the policy regulatory and ethical framings if I don't have a technical understanding I, I think I'm generally off base if I don't try if I don't keep that understanding um, but um, for in terms of the actual types of technical models I tend to pursue um, so there are stuff on the Explainable stuff. So um, there isn't as much. So DARPA, DARPA has a program on this, uh, a program on explainable AI, and we talk to them a couple times. So everybody talks to them <laughs> to, to see what they're thinking. Um, but I, I tend to my 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 perspective on it is a little bit. I think the models I try to build to address that are a little bit more exploratory than what is probably the rain and stuff um in general i think where i've spent most of my thinking has been most of my technical thinking has been on um two things um older models so so there this issue of explainability in in machine learning models it's sort of I, I work with with people who who grew up in the heyday of the 80s ai ai boom it, it's sort of Throwing back to that phase. So, back then, you had these systems, expert systems that were super explainable. They could do forward inference like most of our machine learning models can do, but they could also do backward inference in the sense that you gave it a state of uh, an output state and it can give you a set of likely input states that have cost, which is one form of explanation. So, in a sense, those older systems were better at it than the current systems. And so one of the things I have tried to be exploring in the space of expl- exploitability is this hybrid of, um, of older expert system style models with um, current um, statistical machine learning models. This is not like um, heresy in the sense that you have people like uh, Jury Leskovic at, uh, at Stanford doing this thing where he is using decision tree models to try to create a meta model summary of a black box model hybrid Whatever that black box is, and what my approach is is to uh, refer more to uh, what they call fuzzy systems. Uh, so fuzzy systems were these old expert st- expert systems based model that were more they were used often for 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 linguistic mapping between if and then parts of sets of of, um, of systems. And so the idea there is to take a black box model, create a grey box model that's a bit more explainable that sort of summarises that black black box model and sort of See if you can get better explanations using that grey box model. Um, I think um, the couple of so I mentioned Leskovec's approach to that. I wrote, there was also um, Lipton's work on born again networks. I think trying to address it in a similar way. So, so but then these are all. Like, exploratory type of models to see what's possible, what's feasible. But the other, the, the one I actually care about, well, care about is the long term, I care about all these models. <laughs> the one I actually spend a lot of time thinking about is um, um, the use of machine learning um, models or at least AI style models to uh, try to answer strategic questions in complex adaptive systems. So you have the situation where you have uh, let, let me try to give an, uh, a useful example. So uh, I wrote a paper a while ago, I think a year or two ago, where you had you had a bunch of experts across the world who have thought very carefully about um, what does it take for a local population to begin to support terrorism. So they call it a public support for insurgency and terrorism model. So you have all these experts um pulling their their insights to to come up with with interesting factors and interesting dynamics for how this might work. But that's all linguistic. That's all unstructured data. So one of the things I've been trying to do, and if you think about what what RAND does, RAND is very focused on trying to improve decision-making, even in those types of complex domains where expertise is rare and is always nebulously defined, nebulous in the sense that it's it's not crisply defined in terms of data. So I'm trying to come up with models AI models that, that, that take those type, that type of expertise and um, and uh, create quantitative models that allow you to explore and make better strategy decisions. And there's an old model, an old um, model from... Actually, it's not that old. It's coming back. It's being used in medical diagnosis. It's, it's called the fuzzy cognitive maps. So it allows you to... Fuzzy
0: cognitive them. maps? Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, it allows you to... to Formalize a, a complex decision space and allows you to explore what are the possible outcomes for different types of input. And you, they, it's it's actually very interesting in the sense that yeah I also did it for, so I, the, I I'm interested in this because it allows me to take my quantitative skills and apply to all these areas of of research that are formally that are, that are usually resisted quantitative analysis. So I did it for terrorism, terrorism stuff, like trying to understand the dynamics of, of the support for terrorism. I recently did it for, for a model of um, Graham Allison's To citizens Trap. To, I, I don't know if I, I, I pronounced that properly because I always write it up. I never actually talk about it. It's that To it this Trap. So the idea that uh, when you have two powers, one rising and one one previously dominant, That there is a, that there is a tendency towards, towards um, that interaction engine in in war. So that's how the historians discuss it. But it'd be interesting to see if there is data to support that. So you have to create the, create a model that represents that dynamics and explore it using, using uh, a clustering based methods to see whether it is actually the case that if the dynamics are such as the historians describe, you get an increased likelihood for war or not.
0: In both of those examples that you cited, you know, particularly having previously mentioned, you know, unstructured data, natural language, the, you know, the spaces are so incredibly broad. How do you begin to constrain them such that you can, you know, start to, to model?
1: Oh, so uh, this is where it's really valuable to, to work in a building full of non non engineers experts and phd's who are non engineers <laughs> and anthropologists because what happens is um i i walk into the building somebody walks up to me either a political scientist usually a political scientist or an anthropologist they walk up to me and say oh we have this this problem we'll be exploring probably over lunch and we talk through it and I start thinking because I'm an engineer by 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 temperament and by 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 character, I start thinking, okay, what types of models, what types of quantitative models can I use to try to say something interesting about this this problem they're dealing with. And that's that's how that usually starts. And going back and forth, checking my checking my intuition, checking my modeling with, with their expertise. Usually, uh, some sort of a solution, some sort of, some sort of an approach begins to emerge. And because it's, because this type of interaction is actually quite novel, at, at least it's, 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 it's something people tend to avoid because it's interdisciplinary work is sort of annoying. The languages are so different. <laughs> it really is annoying, like I said. <laughs> I'm not joking on this. So it, it's much of what I, I end up doing is really low hanging fruit. Because if I claim to solve the really hard problems in those, in the other spaces, uh, <laughs> that requires a level of expertise I, I can't rightly I can't rightly claim to, mm. even if I'm talking to a lot of experts.
0: Okay, okay. But, uh-huh. but
1: those are those are my those, are, those, those two explanation and, and the maps. Those are sort of my um, my pet project. I spend a lot of time thinking and developing models on that uh, for actual for actual work. Um, we do things like uh, recently we had some work on use of um, uh, reinforcement learning and and generative adversarial networks to try to develop um, uh, planning solutions in a, in a, in, a, in an agent based simulation model. So there's that type of stuff that keeps me sharp and keeps me abreast. But um, it's not I don't need to produce like. Uh, Production
0: ready code on that. Type of stuff. <laughs> uh, the whole space of applying machine learning to the, to strategic decision making is, is quite a, a fascinating one. Uh, can you maybe take us into a, a little bit more detail for either of the examples that you gave? Hmm. Um, you know, what does the data look like that you ended up using? You know, what's the kind of the process? Hmm.
1: Okay, so so um, the details. So what what happens here is that you're you're necessarily doing a hybrid type of model, like you're trying to create a a model that takes either equal part expert expert elicited elicited uh, uh, structure and data informed structure, and you're trying to merge it into one. The last paper I wrote on this, um, we had we had um, for example. Uh, we demonstrated using like um explicitation to to create a map a quantitative map that we could then use for forecasting and prediction but then we used um, google trends data to estimate to it's essentially time series data to estimate um, the strength of certain types of connections so that would be some type of uh, it, it, the the technical term is differential heavy learning but in reality it's just some form of advanced um, Uh, Advanced is not not the right word. It's just uh, an involved, um, unsupervised learning technique. In general, there is that you have, and half the time the supervision has to, some of the supervision has to come from expert expert elicitation. So it's sort of semi-supervised in the sense that there is expert guidance for, say, the the directionality of the edges. and So the maps I'm talking about, they're, they're essentially directed graphs. So there's expert guidance and, on the direction of the, of, of the edges in that, that directed graph, and then there is um, there is data unsupervised supervised learning using data to try to tune the, the strength of those connections. Um, there are other ways to do it. Um, this is the that's the simplest way I've found. Uh, it begins to push into into the, re- the realm of um, causal causal inference using Bayesian belief networks. So they are trying to I guess it's causal knowledge discovery. That's technically what you're going to have to try to do. You're trying to take a bunch. If you, if you had no expert whatsoever, you're trying to take a bunch of data, bunch of time series data, and properly, properly infer using um, using um, algorithms like um, junction tree algorithms or expectation propagation. You're trying to correctly infer both. Oh, Mostly the strength of the connections, or if you're doing actual knowledge discovery, the the actual the actual graph graph um, dependency relationships between between nodes and between uh, variables. But um, because I'm working in a different dynamic, it's just the same algorithms. To use the same algorithms, I to, to treat them differently. So I guess the the best the best summary there is it's a form of causal knowledge discovery causal inference mm-hmm. using a different type of a different type of model.
0: I'm so curious though about the 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 data. For example, in the case of this, uh, trying to I uh, even forget the way you framed the problem with the uh, terrorism. Oh,
1: probably so. So that that first paper was that that I I will not. The, that was entirely expert-driven, expertise-driven. So we had meaning, a, not
0: uh, data-driven.
1: Uh, well, it's a different type of data in a sense. It's, a, it's a, meaning, oh, it's or rather,
0: not, not statistical.
1: Not statistical, exactly. Got it. So okay. it's a form of, um, it's a form of. We had a corpus, a, a language corpus. The way technically you'd want to do this in a, in a fully. In a fully, uh, in a full project would be to take a natural language corpus that's relevant to the topic of interest, in this case, terrorism, um, create some, um, identify the, the relevant keywords. So in this case, there are things like uh, keywords related to how the, the local population feels the group is, how legitimate the group, the, the feel the group is, uh, how acceptable the risks are. So you create a um, Filters, language filters for those types of for those types of identified um factors. And then you just basically look for co occurrence of, of those filter of those um of those filtered terms with other terms. And co occurrence will increase. The, the more co the more two 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 types of terms co occur, the more you put you increase the edge of the strength of the of the connection between those two things.
0: So in in some sense it's uh it's using uh, kind of almost a graphical approach to sentiment analysis across this corpus. Yep. Uh, Do you have any recommendations for folks that are interested or intrigued about this, you know, these fuzzy models or applications of machine learning to strategic decisions or game theoretical applications? Where where should folks start looking? So for
1: the fuzzy models, well, the positive cognitive maps. Uh, I think the best the best discussion is still yeah. there is a, a, a summary book I think by Elpiniki Papa Georgiou in Greece. Um, it's out there. Uh, I can I can send the link later on. Uh, it's just a survey of positive cognitive maps theories and applications, recent applications, um, on on the the issue of oh, on the issue of causal inference. I. I, I would say the books like, um, what's his name? Pearl's books on, on causality. Um, in a different, in a different tradition, I would say maybe, uh, Rubin, not, not, it's not Rubin's books. There, there are a couple of books on propensity score, score methods that, that are relevant. So I, I have a ton of books, but I don't remember, I don't always remember the name. <laughs> and I'm very trying, on the spot. Uh, on the issue of strategic, Strategic uh, decision making using machine learning. I think, um, so that's, that's an interesting area largely because I feel like that's underserved in the literature. So, um, I refer to, I refer increasingly, at least while I was, while I was working on that particular project, to a really old book by Axelrod. I believe it's David Axelrod, The Structure of Decision Making. And for that style of, Graphical, graphical coalescence of of expert knowledge. I I haven't seen as much work, but there, there are papers. The positive cognitive map papers do that. So we had the the first paper did a did a causal cognitive map of how appetite, how the economics and appetite in South Africa are interrelated. Uh, So most of the interesting strategic uses of positive cognitive maps are still in papers. I think Um, there, there is another area of so the, the, this algorithmic game theory idea, the idea of mechanism design to, to try to solve some of the, the, the incentive problems you're seeing. I think, uh, Tim Rothgarden he has a book called Algorithmic Game Theory, actually. <laughs> I think that's, that's going to be, that's going to be, a, a, a an increasingly important area when we're thinking about, uh, feedback systems and, and, and decision making. And you're going to need some type of, mechanism design process to try to incentivize people to act in specific ways and you'll there you get to in algorithm with the use of algorithmic game theory you get to throw in all your quantitative skills to try to improve improve decision making in a game theoretic setting um, I think Rough Gardens book is still the best in that space
0: Well, Oshande, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to chat with me about this stuff, really interesting stuff Let's talk about it Alright everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Oshonde or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimmalai.com slash talkslash 182. For more information on the entire Deep Learning Indaba podcast series, visit twimmelai.com slash indaba twenty eighteen. Thanks again to Google for their sponsorship of this series be sure to check out the 2019 AI residency program at g.co slash AI residency. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.